All right, turn to Romans 8, chapter 28, and um, um, Romans 8, 28. Yeah, Romans 8, 28, and we'll read the first, or those next four verses. This is a passage, actually, it was interesting that, that the Lord placed on my heart as well for uh, the dear funeral, uh, funeral of our dear friend Joe yesterday, part of this, anyway. Romans 8, 28, 31, if you don't mind standing again for the reading of the word. Just a moment to just say, hey, Lord, we, we not only respect your word, but we are so grateful for your word and we stand under its authority. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he, also, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Well, here we are one day after... Um, celebrating to some extent the life of our dear sister Joe and committing her body to the ground. And this morning, Krishna, our hearts are for you and with you, alongside of you, and we love you. And may God strengthen you in every way. We had the promise of God's word echoing in our hearts and minds, this, this promise specifically, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever, <laughs> forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so we encourage one another with these words. And we encourage one another with these words today again. Amid the sadness of the loss of a friend, an encourager, uh, a deep encourager, wasn't she, Joe? Just, just she encouraged and strengthened and, and you know, corrected uh, some wrong thinking sometimes. She's a prayer warrior, sister in Christ. Um, amid that sadness is this great joy and hope, a certain hope on account of the very things we get to talk about this morning. This is the center of our faith, the recognition of what we're going to talk about today, or the reality, not even our recognition, but the, the reality of what we're going to talk about today, whether or not we recognize it, is a, that's another question. I have the joy and privilege of speaking this morning about the doctrine of salvation, a message I've entitled, Delighting in the Gift of Salvation. Last week was Delighting in the Gift of the Spirit, today Delighting in the Gift of Salvation. Certainly easy to take for granted, hear the same thing repeatedly over and over again, week after week, um, as it pertains to the good news found in Jesus Christ and to be generally kind of maybe unmoved by it until one day you're with a loved one, talking with them and praying with them, and the next day they're laying there lifeless. And suddenly... The gift of what I'm about to speak on this morning gains new life, a fresh meaning and provides deep, humble, and happy hope for the days ahead. As I stood in the room with Krishna after Joe passed, 
there is just a weight of the reality that we are eternal people. This life will not last. And there is hope to be had. Or there is a life that is just left and we go through it and we procrastinate and reject this truth. May that not be you this morning, whether it's the first time you've ever heard what I'm gonna speak on or the three millionth time. May it land on us by the power of the Spirit, opening our eyes. When we speak of the glories of the gospel, it would be so good for us to know what it is that makes it glorious. Not just a, not just a set of teachings that we kind of ascribe to or mostly ascribe to or, or very much ascribe to, but what, what makes this news glorious? Why is it central to us? And so in this passage we come to today, Paul is wrapping up this section of Romans 8 where it's just an amazing section, isn't it? Where he just lovingly gives the church like repeated opportunities to give glory to God for what he's done. Promise after promise after promise of truth and the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lives. Things like this. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's amazing truth. Something we're very familiar with and something that kind of lands on a Christian who has been a Christian for a while, who's heard it three million times. That's true. It is enormous that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Though we are adopted into the family of God. That's crazy amazing. Sons and daughters of God. That the spirit of God lives and dwells within us. I mean, really? The God lives within me. And he tells them of the hopeful new life we have because of what God has done for us. What God has done for us. And here in this section, we have a clear and concise doctrine of the gift and the wonder and the glories of salvation. And so I'm praying this morning, and just, just as you even just check your heart even right now in this moment, just say, Lord, open my eyes. Lord, open our eyes. Spirit, open our eyes to see the glories of what you have done for us. And as we grow in our experiential understanding of these things, uh, our lives will be wonderfully affected. In fact, the, the primary idea that I want to think about this morning is a life of humble happy hope is ours because of God's gift of salvation. Humble, happy, hopeful. That's the life of a Christian. And we need to know, believe, and experience this. If we don't, life becomes mundane. Oh, we know what that's like. We know this mon mundane reality, this uneventful, sorrowful, depressing, empty, and hopelessness that, that the world has that, that somehow creeps into our own existence as well. We lack gratitude sometimes when we could be happy with joy regularly, even constantly. When, when these truths that we'll recall today, I, I, will, I will say this, always intermixed with sorrow, right? Sorrowful yet, what does Paul say? Rejoicing. So sorrowful yet rejoicing. 
uh, Christian, I'm sorry if I keep pointing to you this morning, but, but you are a prime example to me in these days specifically of someone who is sorrowful yet rejoicing. Not without questions about the hows and the whats and the what fors and all that, but, but fully entrusting yourself to the Lord. And it's, it's remarkable. When these truths that we'll recall today are with us, we can wake up in the morning no matter what we're facing, no matter what is pressing in on us, no matter what's causing the pain, no matter what's causing the anxiety, no matter what's causing the fear, we can humbly proclaim verse 31. If, if this is true, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, nobody can be, nothing, we can need nothing more if God is for us. If God is for me, then I'm, I'm set, I'm, I'm good to go. What we come to today is what God has done to you and done for you, for his glory and for your joy if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. And when you know these things again, it just causes you to get up in the morning with faith. It causes a man who just lost his wife of 40 years to endure the suffering and sadness. God's saving work ignites the humble heart with joy-filled hope that radically alters the Christian life. And here's our, our statement of faith. Speaks of this good news, of this gospel. It says this, the gospel stands as the core message of the Bible, which in all its parts testifies to God's saving acts culminating in the person and work of Christ. This good news is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, providing hope for the lost and abiding comfort and strength for the believer. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Sorry, I broke, in, I broke into Acts 4.12 there. But that's what this text is speaking of. And so the big idea again is a life of humble, happy hope is ours because of God's gift of salvation, because of God's work of salvation. Two points this morning. The first is the divine act of salvation, just to consider that together for a few moments, and then the distinct effects of salvation. The divine act of salvation. The act of salvation is all of God. He, not, not, every, not everybody believes this. We, we want to say this is primary. This, this is foundational. The act of salvation is 100% all God. He does the work and we get the blessing. 100% he does the work we get the blessing. We are sinners. We are not holy, yet God is, and that's the problem. Not that God's holy, but that we, we, can never, we can never be that. We can never be like God. We are always falling short of the glory of God. We, we cannot be in his family the way that we are. Our sin is so against God that we literally can do absolutely nothing to cleanse ourselves of our unrighteousness. We can be the nicest person on the planet, but compared to God's holiness, nowhere near and in absolute trouble before God. We cannot bring ourselves into his family. We are powerless to save ourselves. 
Again, reading from the statement of faith that highlights God is the one who does the work, it says this, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he did in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to accomplish salvation for humanity. Therefore, the gospel is not a human action or achievement, but rather an objective, historical, divine achievement that remains true and unchanging regardless of human opinion or response. All these will go out on the sermon follow-up this morning. And of course, you can go to webelieve.sovereigngrace.com and, and, and read all of this at any time. But that, that is a pithy statement. And it's all scriptural. He's the one doing it. We experience it. We become the sanctified ones. Those now who are unable to be condemned, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not now, not ever. So we are the happiest of people because there is nothing that can be against us. Though it feels as though everything is against us, nothing can be against us because God is for us. Blameless, acceptable, those in whom God delights, protected for eternity from the wrath we deserve. And now we live in an awareness of that truth. We have the opportunity to live in the awareness of that truth. And we're reminding ourselves this morning of this because, oh, we must live in the glory and the joy and the happiness of these truths. Which is why we want to preach on it week after week after week. Because if you're like me, Monday morning comes. Sunday afternoon comes. Well, to be happy, humble, and hopeful Christians because God did it and he is doing it and he will complete it. And so the first thing I want to consider is that we are those whom he foreknew. Just from our text, God knows you. He knows you, friends. And this is not simply, I, I know kind of of this person or, or I, you know, I made him somewhere along the line. I just kind of like remember something about him. He's not just acquainted with us. It's much deeper than that. Dr. Tom Schreiner says this, to know refers to his covenantal love in which he sets his affection on those whom he has chosen. This is biblical truth. As many questions as Mike, come up in a statement like that. The biblical truth of things, if you go back a few weeks to God's sovereign purposes sermon from six weeks ago, whatever, lots of questions and all that, but the reality, and there's, there's answers, and, and where you have questions about some of, these, some of these questions, like the word chosen and whatnot, I would love to have conversation with you, but to consider this reality, to know refers to, not to, not to our, knowledge of him, but he knows us. And he is committed to love us. And he has set his affection on us. According to Ephesians 1, to the praise, for the praise of his glory. According to his purpose, he has done it. God has set his affection on you. He is an affectionate God. This is not just a simple choice of yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. He is, for whatever reason, for the praise of his glorious grace, he has set his affection on you this morning if you've trusted in Jesus. Why? Why did he do that? Nothing that you did, nothing that I did. Simply because he set his affection on you. And it's his prerogative to do so as the creator of the stinking world. And he's good. 
so merciful to do it for anybody. It's, it's hard for us to believe how much he loves us. It goes against every instinct we have to relinquish control or contribute somehow to our salvation. We want to have a hand in it, but all God calls us to do is to come to him, believe on him, to, I, I guess, to, to be known. All who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, Matthew 11, all who are thirsty, come. What we bring, thirst. That's all we bring, weariness, our sin. Specifically to know our need for being saved. And, and, and the reality is if we know that we need to be saved, then what's happened already is that God has already been at work in us to open our eyes to see. When we do come to him, humble, broken, and empty, we find rest in the beautiful, finished work of Jesus Christ. Finding that, in fact, all things do work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Like we've been speaking of, Schreiner goes on to say the good that Romans 8, 28 speaks of, that is misused in so many circles, the good is achieved when believers are conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. The call refers to God's work in history by which he summons through some the gospel to himself. Those whom God called, he also justified. The verb denotes God's saving activity by which believers are made right with God. Second, then, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So he knows us. He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Sanctification, progressive sanctification. The fact that God is continually making us more holy, transforming us into the image of his son, taking that which is broken and, and not simply putting us together, but making us new and, and not just making us new in one setting where we become absolutely perfect in all of life, but that he is conforming us slowly into what we already are in Christ. Perfect in Christ, but we know very well our lives, right? And so he is progressively conforming us by the power of the Spirit into the image of Jesus. Day after day, well, moment after moment, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, Statement of faith says, as the all-sufficient Savior, Christ also sanctifies his people, cleansing them from the impurity of sin, setting them apart for God in his service. The renewing work of the Holy Spirit breaks their bondage to sin and Satan and raises them to new life, enabling believers to put sin to death and grow in likeness to Christ. Sanctification is therefore both a definitive act of God and a progressive work of the Spirit. So a God's doing both of it. Both things, definitively and progressively, and yet we get to partner in the latter. We're not just fighting hard to make ourselves somehow holy in our own strength. We've been set apart once for all, and we've been given the spirit of God, the indwelling person, third person of the Trinity, not the least person of the Trinity, as we've talked about on Wednesday nights or last Sunday, but God himself in us, working in us, drawing us to himself, causing us to love him, causing us to see the love of Christ uh, for us, knowing that the love of Christ then compels us, empowers us to live a godly life, to do that work of progressive sanctification, to, to, to kill our pride, to, as Jesus would say, deny yourself 
daily and follow me or, or take up your cr cross daily and follow me. To kill our self-centeredness with the same power that Jesus was raised from the dead with. It's alive in you and I. The Spirit of God at work conforming you and I to the image of Jesus. The text says God predestined, you just cannot get away from the words. God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. So when you're struggling with sin and you're feeling totally weary, you still by the power of the spirit can be assured that over the months, over the years, through obedience, through the power of the spirit again, through obedience to God's word and all that, he is going to do it. He's going to complete the work. Philippians 1.6. He will not be lax in, in conforming you to the image of Jesus. He is at work in you. He will complete it. And he does so specifically, third point, that Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. For Christ to be the firstborn among many brothers tells us that we are brought into the very family of God. Adopted as the father's sons, Jesus Christ as our elder brother. If that's not a weird thing, that Jesus is my brother, he's my savior, he's my God. He's your brother as well. We're not just known and forgiven and just tolerated while being conformed to the image of Jesus. You are now a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter of God the Father and he is committed to conforming you to the image of his perfect son in whom he loves entirely. We are brought into this family. The statement of faith says this, those whom God justifies, he adopts into his family, granting them the full status, rights, and privileges of beloved sons. As God's children, we receive his name, we enjoy access into his presence, we experience his care and discipline, and we eagerly await the glorious inheritance he promises his own. Crazy. Amazing. Fourth, those whom he predestined, he called. God in his kindness called us. He, he knows us, predestined us to be conformed to his son, adopted us, and he called us to himself. He's summoned us. He called us through the preaching of the word. And he did so because for the praise of his glorious grace, he set his affection on us and he called us and he chose us from before the foundation of the world. All the things we've talked about over the years, really, and over the last number of weeks. Here's the statement of faith again. God commands the gospel to be proclaimed to all people everywhere, but all people are spiritually dead and unable to respond to this saving news. Therefore, God graciously and effectually calls to himself those he chose to save in Christ. Through the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit regenerates the elect, brings them into a living union with Christ, bestowing new spiritual life, opening their eyes to see God's glory in Christ, enabling them to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. And then with a renewed heart and mind, we receive Christ and rely fully on him for salvation, turning from our sinful, self-seeking way of life to love and follow Christ in joyful obedience. 
And only those who respond to the gospel in this way will be saved. Yet even this response is a gift of God's merciful grace, ensuring that he alone receives the glory for our salvation. This calling that Paul speaks of isn't a general call in the hopes that he might save some and hopefully some will respond. Rather, as we've considered again in weeks past and as our statement of faith states it, we were dead in our sins. With no hope in the world, we were not looking for him. We wanted to have nothing to do with him. We had all gone astray, Isaiah 53, deaf to the voice of God. But through the preaching of the word, through the proclamation of the word, not necessarily from the pulpit, although that's included, but from the proclamation of the word spoken by his people, the call is made in all whom God chose to save, Ephesians 1, all whom the Father had given to Jesus, John 10, all of them will come to him and be saved. His calling is 100% effective. Now just turn to John chapter 10 for a moment. This won't be up on the screen. John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. This, this passage, this whole passage on Jesus being the good shepherd is an amazing passage. It's, it's uh, challenging, it's encouraging, it's all of that. Verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. It, listen, listen to the, 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 like the same kind of realities that we're talking about even this morning. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, good so far. I have other sheep though that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock, one shepherd. He has other sheep who currently do not know him. But in his sovereign purposes, he knows that the Father has given him some, and he knows that when he speaks that they will respond. They will know his voice. They will hear his voice. They will respond. If you've trusted in Jesus, that's you. Not because you were something special, not because you had some sort of theological moxie, All 100% God's grace, God's work. Fifth, those whom he called, he justified. Your status before God in Christ is this. Guiltless, you are 100% clean before God. Not condemned you are accepted, you are forgiven, and you are in perfect standing with God. Your sin cannot put Jesus back in the grave. Jesus had full victory, his death was fully satisfying to the Lord, and in Christ you are in that. 
how truly beautiful and glorious that truth is. The more aware of that truth I am, uh, yeah, the, there's more of the reality of the sin that's in my life. The more, the more glory I see of God, the more I realize how broken I am and how much I actually sin against God. But then, then what happens is actually that does not, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, when I think more of my sin, I look at my Savior more and I realize he died for all of that. He died for even that. He died for even that. He died for even that and that and that and that. Your, your status as one who has been justified, you have been declared righteous, perfectly righteous. Just as if you had never sinned. That's how God sees you. Just as if you'd never sinned and just as if you had always obeyed. All of Christ's record of righteousness is yours. And when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice was complete, forgiving you of all your sins, which we will celebrate in just a few moments. That, that's glorious. I don't have to add anything to the sacrifice of Christ. I, I cannot add any of my righteous deeds to the perfect record of Christ's righteousness. How arrogant is that? How ridiculous is that? My righteousness on top of Jesus' righteousness? Nobody could be more right with God than Jesus. And we who trust in Jesus are in Jesus, so we are just as accepted in the beloved as Jesus is. So in essence, we sit with him in the heavenlies. That's the reality of you and I if we trust in Jesus. Statement of faith again. In their union with Christ, Believers freely receive all the benefits of the gospel. Those whom God effectually calls to himself, he justifies in Christ, forgiving all of their sins and declaring them righteous and acceptable in his sight. This declaration is judicial, addressing not our nature, but our status with regard to God's law. It is definitive, being neither gradually gained nor able to be lost, and it is gracious. It's a free gift of God's righteousness based on nothing worked in us or by us, but received freely by faith. The sole ground of our justification is the righteousness of Christ, whose life of perfect obedience is imputed to us and whose substitutionary death on our behalf completely satisfies the demands of God's justice toward our sins. Those whom God justifies, he adopts into his family, granting them the full status, rights, and privileges of beloved sons. As God's children, again, we receive his name, enjoy access into his presence, experience his care and discipline, and eagerly await the glorious inheritance. He promises his own. Sixth, those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. If it wasn't good enough, all of our suffering, all of our hardship, the, the junk that dwells within us, all of our sorrow or hatred we receive, grief and exhaustion will end. Those trials that right now in this moment seem timeless, it's just going on. How long, oh Lord? They are, in fact, temporary. They truly are. Our God promises to keep you, his chosen, loved, predestined, sanctified, called, and justified son or daughter. He promises to carry you, to restore you, to bring you comfort. Consider the verses that come right after our text this morning in Romans 8, a very familiar passage. But what then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who 
can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, it feels like it, but it doesn't. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. This is written for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not on our own, but through him who loved us. I'm sure, certain, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing at all will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It, it is so important to know that salvation is the gift of God, that is his work, because then we can trust and we can trust that if we are truly his, there is nothing that can separate us. Nothing can come out of nowhere to separate us. Something that we haven't thought of or something that somebody else get to the day in heaven when we're before God and Satan comes to accuse us, God's gonna say, yeah, I don't think so. He, he has saved us. We are his. Nothing can stand in the way of his love. Now look, if you're here and you've not trusted in Jesus, if you've not responded to the call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, though you've heard it time and time again, like, will you please do it? Answer the call. If you hear the call to repent of your sins against God, like now, do it. Repent, turn away from, turn away from your sin and your self-sufficiency and believe in God. So turning away and turning to, You're turning away from yourself and turning to Christ, repenting, believing the gospel and having full hope in Christ Jesus and not yourself for the forgiveness of your sins. Lay down your pride, lay down your life, commit yourself to the way of the Lord Jesus and you'll be given the privilege of being absolutely forgiven, entirely loved, adopted and kept until the day you see your Lord face to face. Easy thing for us to forget or to oversimplify or the absolute divine glories of our salvation, but need to focus on this, think about this regularly, that we would be humble, happy, hopeful people. The distinct effect of our salvation is just that, second point and shorter point, to be humble, happy, and hopeful, full of wonder, a people who express gratitude for the wonder and glory of our salvation. Uh, that he saved me. We give thanks to God for all he's done. We don't forget the deeds of the Lord like the psalmist speaks of all the time. Don't forget the deeds of the Lord. Rehearse the deeds of the Lord. What has the Lord done? Well, he has chosen me. He loves me. He has set his affection on me. He's adopted me. He's predestined me to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And he, it's so sure. All this is so sure. It's as if I'm glorified now, but my hope is in that day to come when I will see him face to face. And there will be no shrinking back on that day because I have all of Christ's righteousness. And more. 
And so as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, here's, here's a good thing to thank God for. A primary distinct effect, I think, of salvation is humility. When we understand that what we deserve, we don't get. And we deserve punishment, but we've received mercy. And that should cause us to walk in humility always before God and before everybody that we meet. And to understand also that people who don't have that hope, they don't have that foundation. To understand the reality that they're just not going to live in the same kind of hope and who's going to tell them? Who's going to speak of that hope to them? Who's going to live out that hope before them across the table? Who's going to stand with them in the funeral home? Well, a second distinct effect of salvation is, is happiness. It doesn't mean there's not difficulties. It doesn't mean there's not discouragements or frustrations or sorrows or grievings or depressions and the like. It's that amid all those things, our greatest need has been met by God. So really, truly, as we get that, by the Spirit of God, that we get that, that, that all of our sorrows, all of our struggles will not simply be kind of muted with a, a little bit of like, well, but that the Spirit of God would give us a rejoicing heart. And lastly, the fact of this salvation is hope, which of course, humility, happiness, and hope. I mean, a hopeful Christian is, is a happy Christian. A hopeful Christian is, is, is a humble Christian. A thankful Christian is, is a humble Christian. A humble Christian is a thankful Christian. A humble Christian is a joyful Christian. A humble Christian is filled with anticipation because we are dwelling on this reality and on this truth that even in the midst of the sorrow, and again, it doesn't mean there's always a smile on our face, but there is a contentment. So Joe said that, right, Steve? She said that. Joe being, meaning the woman that passed recently. Sitting there in significant discomfort. How are you doing, Joe? Contented. Not enjoying one lick of her existence at that point. Contented. Last statement in the statement of faith that I'm going to share today. Resting in Christ's finished work never renders our effort unnecessary, but rather enables the joyful pursuit of loving and pleasing God. Compelled by grace, believers grow in the knowledge of God, obey Christ's commands, walk by the Spirit, mortify sin, pursue God's priorities and purposes. Although such actions are not the ground of our salvation, they demonstrate the authenticity of our salvation and are a means of which God keeps us faithful to the end. So let me ask you a couple of questions and then we'll close. In what area of your life do you want to be a more authentic follower of Jesus? Is it in your thought life, sexual purity, the way you speak to your kids or your spouse or your coworkers? Is it how you spend the money that the Lord has given you? Is it how you love those in your life who are difficult to love? 
uh, whatever, whatever it is, humbly focus on one area to grow on in these coming months and be filled with certain hope that as you submit to God and as you center your mind, your speech, your finances, your relationships on the Lord, the Holy Spirit will change your heart and mind and make you increasingly, increasingly happier in Christ. Content. How much then as you are loving Jesus and joyful follower of Jesus who has your, you have your sins forgiven, everything's looked after, life's difficult, but my, but my eternal existence is looked after and he is with me today in my sorrow. How attractive is that Christianity to a world that is so confused about what Christianity is all about? Let's commit to read of and sing of, tell of his salvation. As we enter this week of Thanksgiving and the Advent season, let us be a humble, happy, joyful, hopeful people who express gratitude for what Jesus has done. He has come and he has come to save. May we allow these truths and the joy found in these truths to uh, those who've been given mercy to infiltrate our friendships and our conversations and the way we interact with an increasingly godless society. And friends, as we gather week after week, we aren't just filling our heads with more information. We are primarily looking to the gospel of grace, growing in our love for the gospel as we continue to go deeper into the glories of Calvary. We will not depart that primary message. May, may we love the gospel and celebrate the glory of Christ. May we live lives of happy, humble, and hopeful obedience that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, knowing that we are saved and justified and that nothing can take that from us. And may we be those who tell others about this glorious salvation, whether they're in our home or outside of our home. As we intend to mature and multiply disciples who enjoy, declare, and display the good news of Jesus Christ, there is no other message that we have that we are trying to communicate so clearly. The Lord has given us this enormous gift of salvation. May we be a community of people who have fully trusted in Christ, delighting in the gift of salvation for his glory and for our joy. Amen.